Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. And I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. So Sherry, today I'm super excited to have one of my bestest girlfriends on the podcast with us. Vanessa Loader is joining us. Vanessa, I was thinking about it, like how did we meet? Do you remember it was like at that weird hotel near the airport, you and Ainsley McLeod were doing a workshop. That's when we first met. So about, and I think it was Carrington, Sherry, who actually told me about Ainsley. So all these interesting connections and how I ended up meeting Vanessa and then we went to another program that you and Ainsley did, and then I got to be a guinea pig. On Vanessa had this very cool kind of mindful approach to to work that she was testing out, so I got to be part of that initial test group, and that you can really see where that led to where she is now, which we'll talk about a little bit more. But most of all, I just I really just love hanging out with this woman, and I think it was in one of our sessions, Vanessa, that we used to sometimes meet like for coffee or breakfast or something, and. And we were just swapping stories or whatever. And I think that's when you told me about this spiritual advisor that you had that puts together these women's groups. And so I ended up joining that women's group at the same time that you did. And we've had two other women from that group on our podcast as well. So we're super excited to welcome you today. But for our audience, let me just share a little bit more kind of formally about Vanessa. She is a Stanford MBA spiritual teacher. That is a combination of words you don't normally hear. Also an inspirational keynote and sought after women's leadership expert. She's given a TED talk on how to lean in without burning out. And her guided meditations, which are fantastic, have been streamed over a million times globally. Vanessa is the author of a book that just came out. We're getting it sort of hot off the presses, The Soul Solution, A Guide for Brilliant, Overwhelmed Women to Quiet the Noise, Find Their Superpower, and Finally feel satisfied. Just came out last week. So Vanessa, we're so happy and excited to welcome you to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. What a beautiful, warm introduction. And I'm so happy to be here with both of you. Yay, we are happy to have you here. Why don't we just start out with hearing a little bit about your life and journey? I gave the little, the high level, but there's a lot more to your story. So I'd love to just hear about the ups and the downs and the ins and the outs and kind of how you got to where you are now. Yeah, sure. Well, let's see. I was born on... No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) A long episode. (laughs) (laughs) Let me take you through all the years. In third grade, I poked a hole in Stephen Bender's clay (laughs) True story that I still feel bad about, Stephen Bender. If you're listening, I'm sorry. No, but (laughs) in all seriousness, I've been someone who's been... I would say driven and ambitious my whole life. And when I was a kid, I was a tomboy and I loved playing kickball at recess and worked really hard at school and always got straight A's. And I had this kind of work hard, play hard mentality almost built in me and went to an Ivy League school, graduated top of my class, summa cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa, all the things while playing soccer and then graduated from college, thought about joining the Peace Corps, which I think was a little bit of a soul whisper. I went into investment banking on Wall Street instead. You know, same, same. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say there is nobody listening to this episode that was ever deciding between going to Wall Street or joining the Peace Corps. There it was, all these things, the soul and the ego always interacting. It was more than just the ego. But anyway, I went to work on Wall Street. I took this very intense job doing investment banking at Morgan Stanley. I would work these 100 plus hour weeks 
And then I went on to take another job at JP Morgan Partners doing private equity. So these billion dollar leverage buyouts. And I had this very intense lifestyle where I would work really long hours, work around the clock. When I did get out of work, I would go out and drink a little too much with my girlfriends or maybe zone out on the couch and watch really bad TV. And those were kind of the main things I used to manage my stress for many years, alcohol and bad television and sugar, of course. Trifecta. Yeah, trifecta. (laughs) And then I went to get my MBA at Stanford and I thought about doing something entrepreneurial when I graduated, but I chickened out and went back into finance again, kind of taking the safe route. And at the time I told myself, oh, well, it would be more responsible to go back to finance to pay off your student loans. But in hindsight, it was really fear that kept me making that kind of choice. So many of us get to those decision points of, should I start something entrepreneurial? Should I go the safe route so I can pay off my loan? And I love what you just said about when I look back, it was fear. Do you think there's something that could have given you some of that insight a little bit earlier? Or is it really only in retrospect? Yeah, I love that you paused me there because now sometimes I fast forward through my story too fast. You're really like peeling back the layers, which is what I love about this podcast you both have created. And it's interesting because one of the things I talk about and teach about and write about in my book is how the body never lies. And our body will often give us information that is beyond what our rational mind can comprehend. And my second year at Stanford, I was interviewing at these private equity firms. And there's this one firm that's very prestigious that a lot of my classmates wanted to get a job offer to. And they had me in there for like the final, final, final round of interviews at nine o'clock at night on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night. And I still remember the office was pretty crowded. They had all these graphs on the whiteboard. You know, it was just this intense interview. And at the end of it, they basically said, we will give you this job offer if you will verbally accept right now, because they never want a rejection. You have to tell them that you will. And I felt this terrible feeling in my body, like a heaviness, a constriction, almost a a bit of a suffocation. And I told them, no. And then I went out to the bar with all my friends and was like, I just turned down that bar. But wait, were you excited when it happened? I mean, were you like, yeah, I did this? Or was it more like, fuck, I just did this? It was a little bit of both in the sense that I hear this from so many women all the time. It was like, I couldn't let myself do that anymore. Some part of me was just like, we can't, we can't do this. I had like a high and a little bit of an elation. And frankly, my ego loved it because I got to go tell everybody I got the offer without the pain of actually doing the job. Ego was like celebrating that night. But then what happened was I had done a summer internship at a startup and the two founders had gotten into a bit of a kerfuffle and it got really ugly and one was suing the other. And so I kind of went into my second year using that as a reason why startups are unpredictable and unsafe. And then I ended up choosing a job that was sort of more in the middle in the sense that I took a job still in private equity, but at a much smaller, less prestigious firm that was new, that was just raising their first fund that invested in food and beverage companies. And so it was like, I couldn't totally take the leap, but I also couldn't totally ignore the signs of my body's wisdom. And I chose sort of this middle ground route. And the thing I would say just to all the people around, yeah, going through the fear and how to navigate that, or would I've done it any differently? I don't actually think there are any right choices. And I don't think it's like a one-shot deal anyway. And we're always evolving. And in hindsight, you know, what's really interesting is that job I took, I told everyone, oh, I'll only stay at this job for one year and then I'm going to like launch my own business. I stayed for three years. But when I did finally launch my own business, that job helped 
pay my bills for many more years to come because I had equity, I had ownership stake in all of those companies. And the way it works with private equity is it's like a four to seven year investment horizon. And so as I was getting my business off the ground, my leadership coaching business and running all these group coaching programs and retreats for women, I was getting checks in the mail from that other job for many years. And so maybe that was exactly how it was supposed to unfold. So I have a question. It's going through my mind and our listeners' minds of imposing what would have created fear in each of us. But I'm curious for you, what was your fear about? At the time, fear of failure was in there for sure. But it was also this fear of the unknown and not knowing what I wanted to do instead. And this is like the heart of my whole story, which is that I spent so much of my life chasing the external, what I call gold standard that society puts on us, you know, for women, especially it's like, look good and get good, get good grades, get to a good school, get a good job, get a promotion, get another promotion. And it was like, I got to the top of that ladder and I wasn't satisfied and fulfilled in all the ways I expected. And I think underneath it all, for me, a lot of the fear, which has still been a fear is how do I get in touch with myself and my truth and live that in the world, that can feel so daunting. And so it was a fear of not finding my thing and not knowing what I wanted to do if I wasn't doing whatever the prescriptive thing that everyone said was quote unquote successful. Yeah. So here you are, like you are sort of ignoring some of the, what your heart instinct might've been. You take this other job with a private equity firm, which then, as you mentioned, sort of funded your ability to sort of launch your business focused on coaching and women's groups and leadership development. So I'm just curious sort of what next for you? Like what was the, what was, what happened for you next on your journey? So what happened was my husband actually deserves all the credit for the seed of my whole awakening because we met in business school at Stanford and we had been living together for almost a year out of school and he had wanted to get engaged. And I had always said, well, I want to live with someone for a year before I would get engaged. And we were coming up on the clock was ticking down to that year mark. And I was no closer to feeling ready to being engaged. And I really got quiet with myself and asked, is it because he's not the right one? Or is it because we're not good together? Or is this my stuff, my fear? And what I came out with was, this is my stuff. This is having watched my own parents' really ugly divorce. I have a lot of fear around marriage and commitment. And so I actually hired a coach to help me work through my fear of marriage so that I could overcome that, hopefully, and not lose this wonderful man. Which, since you're referring to him as your husband... It worked out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Spoiler alert. (laughs) I kind of led with the punchline there, but yes. So I ended up working with her for several months, and through the whole engagement, I had so much... Like, when he actually proposed, I was both happy and had incredible fear coursing through my body, which is very confusing when you actually want to be with this person. So she helped me learn to label that, oh, there's the fear. And what does that feel like in my body? So it was the beginning of my journey of self-awareness, really. He was the motivation for that. And I worked with her through a whole engagement, got married. We went on this amazing four-week honeymoon and we came back. And then I called her up and I said, okay, I'm now happily married. Thanks for that. Check that. (laughs) Thanks for helping me overcome that fear. Now my career, I don't love it. The people are wonderful. It's intellectually stimulating. It's paying me lots of great money, but I just have this feeling that I'm meant for more. And I don't know what that more is. And for me, at least, I felt like I had followed this formula for success. As I mentioned, get good grades, 
with this unconscious belief that if I followed society's formula, I would get happiness and fulfillment and joy and satisfaction and calm and all the things. And so then when I had the quote unquote success, but I didn't have all the happiness and the fulfillment, I kind of went, what? As the first chapter of my book is called, but I followed all the rules. I dotted all the I's, I crossed all the T's. Shouldn't I be living happily ever after? You had this great either sentence in one of your articles or maybe it was on a video on your website where you said, crap, I've climbed the wrong ladder. That's just such a fabulous way of summing up what so many people have felt. Okay, I've been on this path. I've been really successful. I'm not sure what else I want to do, but crap, I climbed the wrong ladder. Yeah, that was kind of my aha moment of like, oh no, yeah, I've climbed the wrong ladder. And so then I started asking bigger questions like, why am I here? What's my purpose? How do I find meaning and fulfillment? And I started reading a lot of books. I was working with that coach. I started studying with different healers and neuroscientists, got really into mindfulness, trained in something called neurolinguistic programming, which is a way to rewire your neurology to change your response to stress. And basically my overachiever went nuts in the personal development space. My girlfriends were like, so but wait, Vanessa, you went straight for like a three-day silent meditation retreat, having like basically never meditated. And I was like, yeah, that's how I do it. I'm going to be so mindful. <laughs> and then what happened is I was in this period of searching I think this happens for a lot of people where you enter a period of soul searching when you're in some sort of transition. It could be after a divorce or a loss or a career transition. So I was in that period of just asking these deeper, bigger questions. And I read the book, Many Lives, Many Masters by Brian Weiss, which is all about reincarnation, which is not even a topic I had spent two seconds thinking about. I mean, maybe one conversation with my grandma who was into Edgar Casey, And I read this book and he's like a very le- quote unquote legitimate academic background. I forget if it's Harvard or Yale, you could look him up. So I finished this book and it blew my mind. I highly recommend the book if you haven't read it. And I put it down and I had this moment of, oh my gosh, like I didn't even think I cared about past lives. I, and I, now I just, I so believe in this. It resonated like to the core of my being. And I was in this period where I was looking for signs and serendipities from the universe. And I had turned the book over because it was written in, I think 1983 or something. And so I, I thought, I wonder what this guy has been doing since then. So I Googled his name. This was in September of 2009. And the first thing that came up in the search results was Brian Weiss coming to San Francisco in October, the next month. And I lived in San Francisco. I still get goosebumps just saying that. And it was this moment of, I'm meant to be there. So then I buy this ticket to go see him in October. And I'm still working in private equity in my fancy pants job. And I find myself sitting in a ballroom in the downtown Holiday Inn Express in San Francisco with 200 other people while they dim the lights. And he says he's going to hypnotize all of us and take us (laughs) to past lives. And I remember having this moment like, what am I doing? (laughs) And yet, you know, the quieter, there's this little, little voice inside that was like, stay, you're meant to be here. And, you know, that's what I would call those soul whispers. We call them sacred whispers sometimes on the podcast. So it's it's very similar, I think. Yeah. Having a very profound experience that day, like sobbing, this whole very intense thing, which I can get into later if you want. And then where that led me, the next breadcrumb, I ended up training with him the following summer and becoming certified in hypnosis and past life regression healing just for the fun of it, <laughs> as one does. 
and not even ever thinking that I was going to create a business where I was going to do this work with some of my clients. You know, your whole point with your podcast is it's not a, a linear journey. And I did not envision doing this for my work at all. I was just obsessed with the idea of past lives. I wanted to see how many I had had and what were they. <laughs> and you wanted to make sure you had more than anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> I will do past lives better than all of you. Yeah. So, well, I mean, it's funny. I'm ambitious, but it's more like extreme. Like I want to do the most extreme version of this thing. So I did that. And then my coach, who I had hired many years ago to help with the fear of marriage, I had a session with her where I was like, oh my gosh, I've read this book about past lives. It's crazy. Have you heard about this stuff? And she's like, oh yeah, I know about past lives. And I was like, what? <laughs> You've been keeping this from me this whole time? <laughs> Four years and you never met. And she's like, you know, the whole, oh, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. And she's like, oh yeah, you might enjoy a book by this guy named Ainsley McLeod. He wrote a book about past lives and it's called The Instruction. And like, I can get you on his friends and family list if you want to have a session with him. So in his book, he talks about how we all have a soul age and a soul type. And if you understand your soul type, you can choose work that's more aligned for you. And so because I was in this career transition, I thought, okay. So she said, read his book. And why don't you guess what you think your soul age and your soul type is? And then have a session with him and he'll work with his like spirit guides and tell you what he thinks it is. So I did that. And this was another really pivotal moment for me. I remember because I was so desperate to see him that I was on his wait list. So I got a call, an email that was like, can you talk to him, you know, at 3 p.m. on a Tuesday? So I was at work in my corner office in San, downtown San Francisco with my little like finance headset on with my microphone, <laughs> having a call with a quote unquote reluctant psychic. And also, again, another moment of, am I totally crazy? Because you know, if anyone has a session with Ainsley, I know, and you did a workshop with he and I years later, but he'll be on the phone with you and he'll say, okay, Vanessa, we're going to, I'm going to talk to the spirit guides about your, and then, and then he'll go talk to the guides, but he'll, you're still on the line. So you'll just hear him saying things like, oh, uh-huh. Interesting. <laughs> so I'm sitting there in my office, listening to him have a conversation with his spirit guides about me. And he came back and he said, so I had done my own assessment and I thought, my primary soul type was something called hunter, which is very active and likes to do a lot of things. And my secondary was performer, which is self-explanatory. And he came back and he said, your primary soul type is something called spiritualist. And as a spiritualist soul type, you're never going to be happy in finance. You know, there are these things that I think we already know about ourselves, but we're looking for someone often an authority figure or someone outside of us to validate. But when they do, it just really lands and it was sort of like this truth about myself that I think I didn't even know I was in denial of, or I didn't know that I was resisting until he reflected that back to me. And then he said, and your secondary is Hunter and your third is performer. So then I was like, okay, he does know me, you know, he's got the other ones. And then he said, you know, you're not even going to recognize yourself six months from now. You're about to go through a major spiritual awakening. And everything he said came true. <laughs> so it's a very good reluctant psychic. <laughs> that is amazing. And so was that sort of the beginning? I know you've done a lot of studying with a lot of different kinds of modalities. And was that sort of the beginning of that for you? Yes. Then the other big thing that happened in my journey that doesn't always work for everyone, but it can, is I interviewed for this incubator at Stanford where they were going to match a bunch of us through like Enneagram type personality assessment to start a company together. And I was selected for that. And 
it was a real honor, but it just didn't feel good. It didn't feel right. It didn't feel true in my body. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to re- I'm going to start my own company. I've been wanting to do this for years. So I started researching different business ideas and I was going to start this baby products business. I put together a whole investor deck, a pitch, and I was like, I'm going to raise funding from venture capitalists before I quit my job so I can pay myself a salary right away. I was being Stanford MBA about the whole thing. I did a consumer survey, I checking all the boxes. And I had another big moment where I was like, oh my gosh, I don't give a shit about baby products. And the thought that came next was, oh my gosh, my whole life, I've been following my ego and my mind and my wallet and not my heart and my intuition. And maybe that's why I'm so unfulfilled. Maybe that's at the crux of this whole thing. And I'm doing this business idea only because I think it would be a good business, not because I'm passionate about it, not because my heart is really interested in baby products. And I realized if I start this company, I'm going to be living and breathing baby products for the next 10 years. And I'm not actually intrinsically passionate about that. You're saying something that's so, so important. A couple months ago, Anne and I did a episode on purpose and passion. When you said, I realized I don't give a shit about baby products, whether that's like, there's no purpose for me in this, or I have no passion in this doesn't really matter. Recognizing I could care less about this. This is not intrinsically interesting to me and I'm doing it for all the wrong reasons. I think it really speaks to, again, what so many of us can get sucked into this, but here's all the logical reasons to do this. And here's why this makes sense. And here's why this is not practical to kind of do it this other way. And yet here you had a business that based on our conversation thus far, and I just met you, what, like 45 minutes ago, I'm a hundred percent sure would have been wildly successful is you recognizing, yeah, but I'm going to be miserable every step of the way. And I will have climbed another ladder. That's not the right one. There was this pivot point of shifting or at least awareness that I'm no longer going to let ego be in the driver's seat, but I'm going to pay a little bit more attention to heart. And I think what we're always trying to get at with our episodes for our listeners is how do you do that, right? Like you had this moment, you're walking and for what, maybe it's the work you had been doing, who knows? But I'm curious if you have any advice, like how do you start paying more attention to your heart and less attention to your ego? So much advice. It's honestly what my whole book is about. It's been the, the journey I've been on and that I continue to be on because it's not a one-shot deal either, P.S. What I have found in my own experience and that of you know my clients is that usually... It starts with awareness and awareness usually starts with an awareness of what we don't want and the pain point that we're in. And so rather than immediately accessing the heart, it's usually actually we hit a wall because we're not listening to the heart. And so what this looks like for a lot of my clients is unexplainable migraines, hypertension, chronic back pain, right? So sometimes there's signs from the body or a feeling of unfulfillment. Women will say to me, I just know in my bones, I'm meant for more. So it starts with this either a soft inkling or getting hit over the head by a two by four from the universe, because I think there needs to be an opening first and a desire to connect with the heart. And so that's usually what happens first. And then there's a willingness and there's a desire and there's a questioning and that's actually all you need. And then from there, often, and I have a whole chapter in my book about like how to connect with your soul rather than just the loud voice of the ego, because the ego is this loud, incessant chatter in our minds 
And the soul often comes through as like a little whisper in those slivers of silence that we create. And so whether that's starting a mindfulness, a meditation practice, nature really helps people connect with their heart and their intuition. For some people, certain places in nature. For some people, it's the ocean. For others, it's the mountains. But literally going out into the woods with a journal and a pen and asking some questions, that's a great place to start connecting. I love that. And especially doing that practice... I can't remember if we talked about this on the podcast or not, where you just, there's just a question and you don't let your pen come off the paper and just keep writing and writing and writing and just seeing what sort of falls out of your body and onto the paper. I love that. I think that's such a great example of a way to start paying some attention. Well, one of the other things that I outline in, in my book that is a practice I got from Bill Plotkin, who wrote a book called Soulcraft, is something he calls dialoguing with nature. So what you do is you go out into nature, and if you really want to go deep in this, read his book, but this is the the layman's version. First of all, you cross some sort of a threshold where psychologically you're entering into the sacred. So you might step over a fallen tree, or you might cross over like a brook or a stream, or in your mind, you're kind of like, okay, now I'm crossing this threshold into the sacred. And then what you do is you walk until you feel something in nature speaking to you or guiding you to pause and have a conversation with them. So it might be a chipmunk, it might be a rock, it might be a tree. And then you sit there and you really get present with that animal or plant or thing in nature. And you actually have a dialogue with them and you ask them some bigger questions. Like I'm struggling with da, da, da. What do I want to do about blah, 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 like whatever it is. And I think sometimes it can help to make these a little more concrete by sharing a story. So there's a story I tell in my book about this one woman we'll call her Priya. She was like, Vanessa, this whole dialoguing with nature thing sounds so weird. But okay. I'm going to try it. She went out to this local like reservoir with her journal and she's like, okay, I'm going to go talk to like a rock. This is so strange. And she felt really self-conscious because she was somewhere where people sometimes walk and she was going to like try to talk to a rock. And then she's like, you know, it's so weird, but I really did feel called by this one tree. And I found this beautiful little place looking at the water. And I was looking at this tree and like starting to talk to it. And she goes, and then this flock of geese came in and it reminded me of my grandmother in India. I just felt this calling that I need to take my son to India to get back in touch with his heritage. And then I had this idea of, I want to do that soon, like this summer. And oh, and I want to have his class be pen pals with a class in India that my mom's going to put us in touch with. And, And now it's turned into this whole idea for a service trip that started with her seeing a flock of geese you know, reminding her of her grandmother when she went out in the woods with the clear intention of connecting with her heart and getting some answers to some bigger questions. I think some of it too is being intentional as you go into that space. You know what I love about that story is it's not like she solved the world's problems. It's not like she found her next career move or should she, you know, stay with her partner or whatever. She was just sort of being present to what is. And then what came out of that is this deeper connection to, it sounds like where she's from, and then it really exposing her child and hopefully her kid's classroom as well to people in a different part of the world, which I think is so amazing. I think sometimes when we're in those moments of, you know, you were, you were walking down near the beach and thinking, should I start this baby clothing company or should, you know, or, or what? And for you, it was like, you had this kind of aha, like, you got a solid no, right? Like I should, I don't give a shit about this stuff. So that's a great story too. But what I love about her story is she didn't even really have a question. She was just kind of like seeing what showed up. 
Because then it's not about achieving something. It's really about just being present to what is, which is so beautiful. I love that. You know, I am really struck by listening to your story. Our listeners would not be able to see this, but we're on Zoom. I bent out of the line of vision for a second because yesterday I had printed out a page with the 12 stages of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. And so I was just reaching for it because your story really mirrors a lot of these steps. I'm not going to read all 12, but the first step is that the ordinary world of the hero with its suffering, boredom, and neurotic anguish. This happens to be the one that I printed out, right? I'm sure there's different language there, but stage number two, a call to adventure when the ordinary world is no longer endurable and the hero is ripe for change. I'm not going to read them all, but the, the third one is that refusal of the call because the hero is scared. Four is meeting a mentor. And for you, your mentors came via books, right? But it's just so interesting. And I don't think that I would have connected this if I hadn't been reading this yesterday. It's very much following the path of the hero's journey. Yes, I completely agree. And that's something I literally talk about those steps in the hero's journey in the I, so I teach a program for women who are going through a career transition of their own. And, and I actually bring in the Joseph Campbell framework because I think it's so appropriate. And yeah, yeah. Well, what I love about your book is that it really sounds like it's not meant as a memoir, but in so many ways is kind of memorializing in some ways your own journey and your own steps, right? What you have learned along the way. And you're now sort of sharing some of this great wisdom and you're pulling from different modalities and different traditions to share with your readers. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about the, even their journey of, of writing the book and where did the idea come from and how did that process go and where are you now with it? I'd love to hear a bit about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I, one of the things I talk about in the book and in my programs is following what I call your energetic breadcrumbs, which are those moments that light you up, that make you feel really alive or sort of like some inner spidey sense goes like, Ooh, I want to know more about that. And following your soul whispers and the guidance of your soul. And, you know, one of the tying it in with the dialoguing with nature, our soul often doesn't speak to us in language. It usually speaks to us in feelings in the body, in signs and serendipities, in nonverbal communication, in dreams and synchronicities and longings. And so that's why I think tuning into nature can help you connect with your soul as can dreams. And so for me, launching a business, doing leadership development programs and private group coaching programs and retreats for women it was always one of those things of, oh, you, it'd be great to write a book, but it was more of a should and it felt more ego-based. And I decided that's not how I want to run my business or my life, write a book just to grow my platform. And so I knew I wanted to write a book intrinsically and my ego wanted me to do it sooner, <laughs> but I waited until I felt called. And for me, the calling actually showed up as a dream. And I remember Anne even telling you about the dream because you nailed it in some of the interpretation of it. I had this very vivid dream probably about three years ago of a book cover and it was bright white and it had an Egyptian face on the front with those golden black like headdress kind of thing. I don't even know what that's called that pharaohs used to wear. It was just one of those dreams that really stuck with me when I woke up. You know, some dreams you can tell like that was potent. The feeling in my body when I woke up was, I don't even know what that means with that Egyptian thing, but the feeling was it's time. It's time to write the book. And then I ended up feeling called to go to Kauai by myself and meditate and 2 a.m., you know, waking up with ideas and journaling them. And I started working with this goddess called Isis, who's an Egyptian goddess. 
kind of channeling and communicating with her. And it wasn't until like even months after that, that I found out that she was Egyptian. I just was like working with ISIS. And then one of my spiritual teachers said, oh, ISIS wants to help you write your book. And she's Egyptian. And I was like, ah, <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> I have the <a> dream. <laughs> and it was fun. It actually was fun to write. And I haven't always had that experience with my work, you know, especially something so tangible. It would be very easy to get back in the hamster wheel with it all. But I really was diligent about letting it unfold in its own timing and kind of listening to my soul as I worked on it. And that felt really good for me. And really the book in a lot of ways, I mean, I spent 10 years kind of searching out a lot of these resources, these modalities to try to figure this out for myself. And I just thought, gosh, I wish this was all in one place for other people, especially women, whether that's for their career or relationships or their health. And they fundamentally, I think what so many of the women who come to me are really asking is, can I trust myself? That's the question underneath all the questions. And the point of the book is not to say like, here's the answer. I have the answer. The point of the book is to say, you have the answer. It's already inside of you. And here's a roadmap to help you get there, to help you access your own inner authority and the whispers of your soul and follow your energetic breadcrumbs to create your own most satisfying and joyful life. You know, what I really love about the way you talk about this is accessing, I'll often refer to it as all that neck down wisdom, as opposed to the intellect that lives in our heads, but doesn't always serve us super well in these kinds of processes. But I'd love you talking about all these different things that people can, can access, right? Whether it's the way their body feels or an emotion they're feeling or a dream or a sacred whisper. And it's making me think about, you had an article on LinkedIn on emotional agility and you quoted Susan David, who's amazing with all her work around emotional agility. And she says, emotions are data. I think we have a tendency to poo-poo things that don't feel logical. But if you start thinking about emotions as another form of data, I think that can sometimes be a way to put more credence on them. Yeah, that makes sense. And the other thing that I write about in the book that I think is so true is often when we get this information from this other part of us, whether it's like a soul whisper from our body, one of the signs that you know that you're actually on track with being in alignment with your higher self is that the ego and the mind will come in and judge it as weird or random, not important. I was like working in private equity, sitting in a ballroom about to be hypnotized. Like it doesn't get more discordant than that because who you think you are is one box. And if you're trying to get out of that box of who you think you are, well, of course, some aspect of you is going to go, well, this is not who I am. This is not what I believe. This is weird. So when women say to me, it's so weird, but duh, 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 whatever's going to follow, it's so weird is actually often a really important golden nugget. Okay. I love that. Cause that's such a tangible thing that people can hold on to. Like if you get that little voice and that little whisper in your head that says, this is so weird, that's something to pay attention to. And that's a good thing right? This is so weird. That's a good thing. Yeah. So Vanessa, what is the soul solution? <laughs> what is the soul solution? I know S-O-U-L, but it's also S-O-L-E. For me, is some of what I've already talked about, this ability to tune into our higher self, our deeper wisdom, our inner knowing, to trust it and to take action on it. And I consider myself now a feminist spiritual teacher and my bigger level, more macro vision I felt like I was trying to change this system from inside. And growing up living in patriarchy, 
I think in corporate America, a lot of women are so happy to have a seat at the table that we haven't really questioned how the table is set. And I fundamentally believe I was trying to beat the boys at their own game and by their old playbook. And I think what we need to shift into this new paradigm is to not even be at a square table anymore. We need a round table. We need beanbag chairs. I don't even know what we need. But what we need is each person to be able to tune into their inner authority, their soul, and to live and breathe and move and act in the world from that place of authority and confidence and power. It's a very different kind of power. And I personally believe that that's what we need to have more equitable leadership, to have a better planet, all the things that you know I dream about. And one other quick story I'll share that I think is part of the power that's built into the soul solution when you access it. My very first meditation retreat was a day long at Spirit Rock, which is in Marin. And it was a women's day long, just for women. And I had not really meditated much yet. And I was in this room full of women meditating from like 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. And I remember late in the day around two or three o'clock in the afternoon, I was just feeling like tired and I having all these thoughts, like how are these people still meditating? And I did this thing that I think a lot of beginning meditators do, which is like, I peeked my eyes open to look around the room. Like, are they all really still meditating? And then I had this moment where one of the teachers, there's three female teachers sitting on the day. So one, she had this gray hair, with this beautiful, like bright white streak in it. I looked around the room And I felt the palpable energy in the room. And I looked at the teachers, especially that one with her gorgeous gray hair. And she was emanating this presence and this feminine power. And I could just feel her energy and the energy of all the women in the room. And this thought came through me, which was my whole life, I've been chasing the wrong kind of power. The power that I really want, it's in this room right now. It's in every woman in this room right now. It's in that teacher on the days. And it's also in me and it's in all of us. And that's the power that I really want. And how do I get more of that? <laughs> you know. And so in some ways for me, that's what the soul solution can be opening the door to that kind of power. Oh my God. I love that. What a beautiful awakening, right? What a beautiful gift that you got sitting in that room with all those women. And so Vanessa, I'm thinking about you are pretty far along in your journey. Not that any of our journeys are ever anywhere close to over, right? We could start calling it the endless journey, but that doesn't sound (laughs) quite as interesting. (laughs) But I'm actually thinking back to little Vanessa, high achiever at a very young age, having no idea what was coming down the pike with knowing all these amazing things that you've learned. If you could go back in time and have a conversation with your younger self. What is one piece of advice you would give her? Mm, such a good question. For me, and I haven't gotten into all my like childhood trauma because that's that's a whole other podcast episode, but I came out of my childhood with a lot of beliefs that there was something wrong with me and I was the problem. Hence the perfectionism, the overachievement. So I think what I would want to say to her is you are not the problem. You never were. And you are the solution and you always were. Oh my God, that's so beautiful. Y'all can't see Vanessa's face, but even when she said that, she had this very ethereal, beautiful look on her face. And so you are not the problem and you never were and you are the solution and you always have been. It's so beautiful. Vanessa, you have so many words of wisdom in your book and so much to teach people. Where can people find your book? Well, if you go to my website, VanessaLoder, dot com forward slash Soul, S-O-U-L 
hyphen solution. That's a great place to buy the book because we have all these free bonuses with guided meditations and visualizations and things. Or you can always find it on Amazon or your local bookseller. Sounds true. Indie books. There's a Barnes and Noble. Awesome. But I love the fact that they go to your website, they can get all these little extras with it. So I think that's great. And I'm sure they can sign up for your newsletter there as well, because hopefully you'll be having some other fun things associated with your book. I know you will speak into corporate environments as well. And so a good way to reach you would be through your website for those types of things. So I just want to say, Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, it's always fun to have a friend, but both of us, I mean, Sherry's just meeting you, but we both like learned something today and it's just Whenever we laugh this much, too, we know it's been a good one. (laughs) Good. Yeah, that's always the sign of a fabulous episode. So on that note, that wraps up our episode for today. We really hope you enjoyed it. And would love if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes, or post it to your own social media. You can find information in previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. And please join us next time for Flowing East and West, The Perfectly Imperfect Journey to a Fulfilled Life.